ahead, open your Bibles up. We're going to be in Galatians, the very end of Galatians chapter 5. We're taking a brief break this weekend because it's the 4th of July weekend from the book of Acts. Normally we study verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. Uh, we're taking a brief break from the book of Acts today to be in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 25. As a pastor, I have a number of aims that I'm trying to do every single week. Uh, not just every week on a Sunday, but throughout the week, things I'm trying to accomplish in us as a community. First and foremost, I want to teach the Word of God. I want to demonstrate what it looks like to take this Bible real seriously and to say that if we're going to construct our lives on anything, we construct it on the Word of God up. We interpret all of life around us, everything that takes place in this world, we interpret it through the lens of Scripture, and that's how we know we're living in accordance with God. So I want to teach the Word of God, and I want to form the Word of God in us deeply Secondly, I, I want to form a biblical community. We talked about today serving and the opportunities there are to serve, but, but being a biblical community runs very deeply into the blood of a Christian, that we would part, be part of a, a community of saints, of believers, where we're so deeply intertwined with one another, where our lives are so overlapped, where there's authenticity, where there's deep biblical reflection taking place, where there's sin and then restoration of the sinner, where there's repentance and then growth, where there's backsliding and then jumping in and caring and then moving forward. I want to be a part of all of that. On our best days, I see it all taking place. And on our worst days, I see all the things and hurdles that stand before us in becoming that exact community that God has called us to be. This week, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was reviewing a, a wonderful book by a guy named Richard Lovelace called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. If ever you want a book to kind of take you to the deep end of the pool on uh, what it looks like to truly be a Christian who's transforming, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life is a good starting place. If you want a little... Uh, acknowledgement for this book. If you guys know Tim Keller, he says it's the most important book outside of the Bible he's ever read, okay? So <laughs> pretty, pretty important book. Here's a uh, quote from that book. He says, what a flood of spiritual life would be released in the body of Christ if these blockages were removed, the, the blockages of what keep us from being a biblical community. What a flood of spiritual life would be released in the body of Christ if these blockages were removed. The power released could only be compared to the outrush of energy produced in molecular fusion. Here's what he's saying. If the church could figure out how to remove the boundaries and barriers and hurdles that keep us from living out biblical community as the Bible describes it, if we could figure out how to, how to remove those things, it would be like a spiritual atomic bomb going off in our cities. We, we wouldn't be able to contain what was happening in our cities. Now let's think about biblical community for a second in light of the context we're in. The last year has posed an unbelievable and unprecedented hurdle to Christian community. COVID-19 normalized isolation. It, it literally changed the way we think about society. It changed the way we expect society to work. Masks impersonalized our daily life, right? So rather than seeing the emotions of a person, you just saw a body of a person, and while we don't quite understand fully, psychologists don't fully understand the impact that has on our mind, it has an impact. Masks have depersonalized the human experience. In many places around the world, including our country and including our city, there was a short season there where the church was told they could not gather. Now, we can have debates about this all day long, but the church was told they could not gather, and the community of the church was lumped into every other type of community and group. And they were told, just do it online. 
Just move it online. It's the same thing. And for many of us and for many churches around the country, that expression of church was normalized. Impersonal, no life on life, turn the screen on. On top of that, we've been in the middle of a hyper-politicized situation in this country, have we not? We went through an election this last year that was hyper-politicized. There are any number of themes that are running through our culture, any number of taglines and tag words that you can either jump onto the bandwagon with it or you can stand up against it. And sometimes what happens is these political ideologies end up working their way into the church and all of a sudden brothers pitted against brothers, sisters pitted against sister. You felt any of that? I just want to tell you, as a pastor of a church, those wounds have run deep into this church. There's not a pastor on the planet who has not felt that in the last year. But I believe in the carnage of the destruction of meaningful community that took place over the last year. The church, the true church, Christ's church, who's built on the word of God, who's looking to the Holy Spirit to build us up the right way. We have a moment right now. We are in a very unique moment to demonstrate what biblical community really looks like to a watching world. We have a moment before us to, in the midst of the destruction and the carnage to authentic biblical community, to kind of shine like a bright light in the midst of it and say, hey world, look in on this. You see the, the, uh, you, you see the destruction that took place in your own life? Look to the church and see what Christ intended. Over the years, I've preached a lot of messages on biblical community. It's a theme that runs all the way through scripture, Old and New Testament. And so today, I'm not going to be able to cover all there is to biblical community, but I do want to take us into kind of the deep end of the pool a little bit. Biblical community is one of those things, if we're not careful, it becomes a bumper sticker. It becomes a tagline. It's something we say we really believe in, but then in practice, we don't actually practice with the type of depth the Bible calls us to. We put the bumper sticker on our car. We make it look to the outside world. Biblical community, we're for it. Authenticity, repentance, we're for it. But then when you look at our life, you kind of peel back the layers, you get into the details of life. We're actually not for it. Our lives reveal that. Today I want to look at the cost of community. What's it going to cost you? Not the whole community. The question I have is, what is it going to cost you to be a biblical community maker? To be a biblical community maker. Galatians chapter 5, let me read seven verses today, pretty short. This passage comes right after the famous fruit of the Spirit passage in Galatians. All right, so let me actually read to us from Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, all right? We'll read the fruit of the Spirit. I'm not preaching on the fruit of the Spirit today, but we're rooted in there. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Pause. Are these things becoming more and more true of you? When you read the fruit of the Spirit, we don't hit perfection We're asking, are they more and more true of me year after year? And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here we go. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, 
for each will have to bear his own load. Biblical community, I have three main points today. Here's the first one. Biblical community will require a true sense of the lowliness of oneself. Biblical community will require a true sense of the lowliness of oneself. Humility is the heartbeat of this passage. I don't know if you heard it all the way through. It was humility. It was all about humility. And humility, like biblical community, is easy to say we're being humble, but it's very difficult to actually live out if we're using the definition that the Bible gives us. When you look at verse 26, let, let none of us become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's a contrast against the concept of humility. Why is humility so hard? Humility is so hard because every one of us likes to hear our own name said, and every one of us wants to be the hero of our own story. And if you really look at our lives and you look at our motivations and you look at the thoughts that go through our mind on any given day, every one of us likes to hear our own name and every one of us wants to be the hero of the story. The problem is, is that there's only one name we ought to be elevating as Christians and there's only one hero of the story and it's not us. Let each, let each not become conceited. That word conceited, it, it, it's a translation of a Greek word that means vainglory. It means empty of honor. It's this idea that you look like you're shiny on the outside, but when you really look on the inside of what's taking place, it doesn't match up with the beauty of the outside. There's something dead and dusty and rotting on the inside, and you've just put this veneer on the outside that looks like it's godly, that looks like it has something to offer, but in reality, there's nothing there. There was an author, I can't remember who this was, but he said that pride is the dandelion of the soul. What do dandelions do? You look at a field and dandelions from a distance look beautiful. Dandelions from a distance make a, a green field look bright yellow. It's almost like it's a field of flowers, but in fact it's a weed that's destroying the field. The grass can't grow properly. And it goes into every nook and corner. It goes into every cranner, that cranny. That's what pride does. Pride left unchecked, a constant thought about oneself as the center of one's universe. It's like a dandelion. It, it just pops up and it almost looks good on the outside. But slowly it's just rotting the entire field. Notice what he says, verse 26. Let us not become conceited. And then he gives two uh, visualizations of what that means to be conceited. Number one, provoking one another. And number two, envying one another. Both of those, I argue, are examples of what it means to be conceited. What's a provocative spirit? This is a superiority complex. This is someone who sees themselves genuinely as superior to other people. You walk through life and when you think of who you are and you think of everybody else, you walk into a room like this, you think of your place and what you have to offer, you see yourself as superior to others and so you provoke others. When others come around you, they feel as if you're superior to them because you give off a vibe that you're superior to them. You regularly are looking for ways to defend yourself, to lift up your own honor, to, to make sure that people know exactly who you are and the accomplishments you have. A provocative spirit loves the attention of themselves and the praise they get when the attention is on themselves. They love being the center of attention. They love having the answers. They love winning a debate. In its worst forms, this person looks down on other people. It's full conceit. Here's the challenge with this. I'm painting a caricature of a hyper-conceited person. But many of us, myself included, have lesser versions of this working our way through our, our, our regular life. And if we're honest, if we allow the text to kind of rub up against the barnacles <laughs> and just kind of wash ourselves a little bit, we realize that this is true of us. The motivations of ego are there. 
And the Christian needs to recognize this and repent of it. This is a superiority complex. But, but this spirit of pride, the lack of humility, is not just in a superiority complex. He also says that it can come out in envying one another. Verse 26. This is an inferiority complex. This is where we see ourselves as constantly less than other people. We envy other people's gifts. We're constantly feeling like others are superior to us. We're marked by a chronic sense of failure, a chronic sense of underachievement, a chronic sense of shame, because compared to others, we're just not smart enough, we're not attractive enough, we're not competent enough, we're not gifted enough, we're not organized enough, we're not educated enough, we're not successful enough, we're not rich enough, we're not prominent enough. For some in this room, there's this ongoing inferiority complex where we see ourselves with other people and when we walk into a room, we have such low feelings of ourselves that we don't actually understand what the gospel's done in our life. We need to have a low sense of ourselves, but we need to have a right sense of ourselves as well. See, the, the, the challenge here is that both, both a superiority complex and an inferiority complex are both versions of being conceited because both have ourselves at the center of our universe. Both are constantly thinking of ourselves, wondering about ourselves, aiming to have ourselves be the center of our thoughts. Meanwhile, it's the Christian who rightly understands the gospel who's removed ourselves from the center of our own universe and has placed Christ at the center of our universe and is experiencing a genuine healing, healing from the weaknesses and the wounds that come from the superiority complex and the weaknesses and the wounds that come from an inferiority complex. There was a... Uh, an author, Kristen Neff, she's a psychiatrist at a University of Texas. She was talking about the self-esteem movement. And she writes this. She says, look, I think because of the big self-esteem movement, that's where we constantly feed our children the self-esteem. You are something. You can be something. And we're filling their lack of self-esteem with motivational speeches. I think because of the big self-esteem movement, people just got it in their heads that the key to psychological health was self-esteem. But research has shown that because of this emphasis on self-esteem, we actually got a generation of narcissists. That's actually what Paul is saying in some way. The data now supports exactly what Paul says. If you focus on yourself, whether because of superiority, conceited, provoking one another, or inferiority, envying others constantly, it's the same thing. You got yourself at the center of your universe. And the key to Christianity is elevating Christ. The higher you elevate Christ, the more you love Christ, the greater you see Christ, the more you focus your attention on him on the cross and his love for you and his blood shed for you, the more rightly you see yourself. Not overly low, but rightly centered on what Christ has done for you. The great author Andrew Murray writes on humility so beautifully. He says this, the highest glory of the creature is in being only a vessel to receive and enjoy and show forth the glory of God. It can do this only as it is willing to be nothing in itself, that God may be all. Water always fills first the lowest places. The lower, the emptier a man lies before God, the speedier and the fuller will be the inflow of the divine glory. Here we have the cost of community. Are you willing to pay it? See, the life of a Christian is constantly going low like Christ, constantly washing feet like Christ, constantly taking on the form of a servant like Christ. Again, these are bumper sticker slogans in Christianity at this point. Your life tells whether you're living this way or not. Your thoughts tell whether you're living this way 
or not? Are you willing to go low and wash feet? Psalm 84.10, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Cost number one, are you willing to pay it? Second cost, biblical community must require a life of proactive concern for others. Biblical community is going to cost you this. It's going to cost you, it's going to require of you a life of proactive concern for others. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, let me read it again. Brothers, that's familial language, right? When you come into this place, you're not strangers. You're not just some random people that came into a room to hear a sermon or a lecture. You're family, Okay? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Did you notice three commands in that passage? We're to restore the brother, we're to keep watch on ourselves, and we're to bear one another's burdens. Those are actions, those are, those are things we do, Right? So instead of turning Netflix on, we do what the Bible tells us to do, right? Netflix will slowly dull your spirit. Stepping into brokenness with actionable lives will increase your love of Christ. Three commands. Number one, restore the brother with gentleness. See, here's the thing about family. I said it starts off with brothers, right? That means we're a family. We're brothers and sisters. Uh, I've got family, and this is the thing I know about family. Family's messy, and here's why family is messy. It's not because my parents and my brothers and sisters are messy. It's because I'm messy, and I'm in my family. <laughs> Each of us are messy, and we're in our family. Did you, notice, watch, if you're looking at your family and you're thinking, man, my family's messed up because everyone besides me is in it, you have the superiority complex. <laughs> and you don't realize that your family is thinking, man, our family's got some problems because they're in it right? We all bring our junk into our family. When you come into a Christian family like this, brothers and sisters in Christ, stepping into a church family, we bring all that baggage into us. All of us have wounds we carry into here. All of us have stories we carry into this place. All of us have deep wounds from the last year that we're carrying in here, wondering what other people are thinking, wondering if they see the world the same way we do. We all bring that into here. We're not unaware of that. So we come in here and and there's moments where there's sin involved in this. It's not just wondering about someone else, but when you really get into life with somebody else, the messiness plays itself out in wrongdoing. What's the first command here? Restore the brother with gentleness. See, look, if you really, Psalm 8410, if you see yourself as a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, what's, what's the concept with that verse? I'd rather be the doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than live in the house of the wicked. If you see yourself as a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, you are, you're grateful to be in the room. You see that? You don't care what your role is. You're just glad the door was open for you, the Christian. Now, if you're in the room, and that's your mindset, and you understand that Christ has forgiven you by the blood of the cross, the cost of forgiving you, of bringing you into this family, was that someone had to die for your sins to be forgiven. And you are a work in progress just as much as anybody else. And any sin you've overcome is simply a work of the grace of God, either because of the family you were born into or the work of God that God is doing in your life right now. See, if you rightly have a view of yourself in light of what Christ has done, then when someone sins against you, how can you not, with a spirit of gentleness, come alongside them and love them back into restoration? 
See, an envious spirit, an inferiority complex or a superiority complex, looks at wounded brothers and sisters who make mistakes and subtly see it as an opportunity for you to establish your sense of precedence in the place. And you do it in the sneakiest of ways. Publicly, you might love a brother or sister back. Privately, your thoughts are looking down your nose at the other person. See, it's the thought life. It's the thought life. It's humility, humility, humility. It's a right thinking of ourselves in light of Christ. Gentleness. You hear that word? I'm always struck by Paul. Pastor Paul in the Bible, he writes so much of the New Testament. He's so fiery, right? This guy, he writes of the gospel and, and stand courageous, and he's, he's challenging. But if you look at him, he also is full of gentleness all through his writings, gently loving on his community. Restore a brother with gentleness. Second one is this, keep watch on yourself. See, this is when you rightly see yourself. The person who's keeping watch on themselves is the one who, when someone else falls, doesn't say, oh, what a fool, but says, but by the grace of God, I haven't yet made that same mistake. And I need some guards up because I'm just as prone to those same mistakes that I see them making. And if I leave my life unchecked, that could just as easily be me in a handful of years. You see this? So it's a right thinking of ourselves. Christ has redeemed us by the blood of the lamb, sinners like us. Now we've stepped into the kingdom covered by the blood of the lamb. We see and we know that we are just as prone to all the same temptations that can take any one of us down. And so we put our guards up. We rightly bring community around us. One of the guards I have in my life is I have two dear brothers in my life that we meet monthly. We live across the city. My wife is best friends with their wives. Once a month, once every other month, as often as we get together, because we have many kids, we're spread out across the city, we get a cup of coffee or we get a burger together and we ask all the hard questions. We dig in, what are you learning? What's God doing in your life? How are you managing this area of your life? I know you, you're prone to this. Is that sneaking its ugly head in? You gotta have your guards up. Because what happens if you let your guards down, you think you got this, Satan comes around with a haymaker when you're not ready for it, and he takes you down. See, it's right thinking about ourselves that establishes these action items. The person who has no guards up in these areas of their life has a superiority complex in the church. <laughs> they think they got it. Just give it enough time. Number three, we gotta bear one another's burdens. This is where we look out for the needs of our community and we reorder our lives and reschedule our lives in order to show up for the needs of the people that are hurting in our community. Matthew 11, 28, verses, uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Central concept in that. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus comes to us and says, Look at me, I'm gentle, I'm going to restore you, I'm lowly, I'm gonna take your burden on my shoulders. And then, this passage we're studying today says, now you go out and you take on the burden of other people in your life. Dane Ortland wrote this book recently called Gentle and Lowly, and in it he says this, what helium does to a balloon, Jesus's yoke does to his followers. We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible loneliness. He does not simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. It is what gets him out of bed in the morning. This is how Christ oftentimes will carry other people's burdens in this church. He'll send you to carry their burden for them. 
And it's only when we begin to understand what the church is that we understand how Christ works. You are the light of Christ. You're the hands of God. You're the light of the world, the salt of the earth. When you show up for a brother or sister in need, you meet their need. Then what happens is Christ is actually meeting their need and carrying their burden through you. I can't tell you how many stories I have where someone in the church has done something very small, right? They, they show up, someone's moving, let's say, and they show up, they rent a U-Haul, they come, they help someone move. They spend four or five hours that day sacrificing their day off, showing up, helping someone move, only to find out two or three weeks later that that person who needed help moving was in a place of desperation. They were beside themselves. And when that person showed up and bought a U-Haul for them, and gave them four or five hours of muscle to lift couches, what was happening was far more than moving couches. What was happening was we were lifting weight off that person's shoulders. Time and time again, I hear these stories. Time and time again, these stories filter to me as a pastor, as I see you loving on other people. And what's taking place is that Christ, in his beauty, is lifting the weight off of this person's shoulders by sending you to rent a U-Haul. This is why Christianity must be proactive. We're brothers, we're sisters, we see needs and we don't stand back and we step in, we send text messages encouraging, stepping in, loving one another. When someone's broken, we come and we pray with them. Now look, becoming this person is not like tape that you can just put on yourself, like I'm gonna be this person, just you know, wrap yourself up and you're good to go. This, this is a life of beholding Jesus Christ and, and allowing the grace of Jesus to work its way through into the inner recesses of your heart. Because you've got to understand your identity in Christ for this to become true of you. This, because this is how deeply woven pride and ego and the ways of the world are into our heart. You, you don't just rip ego out and suddenly become a servant. You've got to behold Jesus See, if you're not constantly in the word, if you're not regularly in prayer, if you're not doing this thing in fellowship, if there's no singing in your life of the gospel of Jesus and the glory of God, if there's no affection being stirred in your life, these things won't be true of you in reality. You might tape it on for a little bit. You might paste it on and fool me. <laughs> but you, you're not fooling Jesus. He knows the heart, and what this is getting after is not just people who do more, but people who behold more of Jesus. Work the gospel deep into your life, where you're so overcome by the love of Christ that you can't help but look out and say, I've got to serve somebody. I was talking to a dear brother in, the Christ, in Christ, one of our pastors up on the north side. He runs a small house church up on the north side, Pastor Phil. We were talking about Netflix and, and how uh, there's very few shows that we can watch anymore because our, our affections are changing. The things we used to be okay with, it's like, man, like, I just, it's just junk. And he made this interesting insight. He, he just, at one point, he said, honestly, Rafe, I'm at a place right now where I almost, I just want to get rid of the subscriptions I have because I find myself constantly saying, I don't want to, I don't want to bring in this idolatry into my household. And I was sitting there thinking, man, this is a man who spends a lot of time with the Lord. What a man. And I'm thinking, I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna be like this. I want that to grow in me. I, I want my affections to be stirred, that I wanna use my time in different ways. Are you beholding Christ? Do you know what he's done for you? 
Andrew Murray, again, he says this, true humility comes when in the light of God we have seen ourselves to be nothing, have consented to part with and cast away self, to let God be all. The soul that has done this and can say, so have I lost myself in finding thee, that soul no longer compares itself with others. It is given up for every thought of self in God's presence. It meets its fellow man as one who is nothing and seeks nothing for itself, who is a servant of God and for Jesus' sake, a servant of all. Number three, biblical community will require an accurate understanding of your role, of yourself and your role. Biblical community will require of you an accurate understanding of yourself and your role. If, you have a, if you're a Christian, you have been assigned a unique body, a unique self, a unique personality, a unique story, unique wounds, unique healings, unique giftings. And for Christians to participate in the community, you have to understand that you are unique like no one else is unique. There's no one else like you in this place. And if you're here, you've been called to bring all that is you to bear weight on this community because we're less if we don't have you here. Verses three to five. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. It's interesting. It almost sounds like Paul is contradicting himself here. Each will have to bear his own load, carry each other's burdens. The idea here is different. When you carry each other's burdens, you're stepping into other people's pains, you're showing up, and you're helping lift the weight off them so that they can run more freely. When you carry your own load, what you're doing is recognizing that you are needed. You are unique. You're not a bystander. You're not a substitute on the team. You're on the court. You've been asked to play, and you've been given gifts, and if you don't play... We're a man short. We're running the game a man short, and it's a lot harder to play a man short on the field. And so we need everybody to take their gifts, their load, what they've been assigned, their stewardship, their responsibility, and to do it well before the Lord. We understand that we will give an account for what God's given us. What's the account I'm going to give before the Lord? I've got to preach the gospel. I've got to do it faithfully. I've got to be an evangelist. I've got to shepherd this church. And I'll stand and give an account before the Lord one day for how I carried that load that I've been assigned. But every person here has been given a unique load, a unique responsibility. And if you don't know what your responsibility is, you're going to have a very hard time playing in this game well that you've been assigned to play. One of the things we tend to do is compare but this passage, if we've read the passage well, we don't envy one another. Each of us have our own load. Each load is very important. Neither is more or less important than one another. What's important is we've been assigned a responsibility. Comparing one another is just an inferiority or a superiority complex playing itself out over and over again. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, right? A doorkeeper. Just give me a job. Just let me do something in here. I want to be with the Lord. I want to be with the Lord's people. We tend to compare. When we do that, we start seeing our role and our responsibility as either more important or less important than others, how foolish we are. I remember a story of Billy Graham. You know, Billy Graham, when you look back at the history of the church, he's one of, we can make a case, one of the most influential evangelists in all of human history. There is Paul, and there's a handful of others. Billy Graham's on the short list of guys who, through his preaching and evangelism, brought Tens of thousands of people to Christ over the last 50 years. He died just last year. I don't know where I heard this story. I don't even know if it's true. But here's the story I heard about Billy Graham. Is that he came back from a crusade one day. He had filled up an arena giving his message. 
and, it, and people were falling on their knees. You know, at the end of a Billy Graham crusade, it, people would just flock towards the stage wanting to receive Jesus. And he'd have dozens of people trained to help people accept the Lord in that moment, repent and trust in Jesus. Hundreds, perhaps thousands were receiving Jesus that night. Billy Graham walked down behind the stage and he went down into the back room and, and there in one of the back rooms were a handful of older women in their late 70s who were preparing sandwiches for the volunteers that night for after the event was over. Billy Graham stopped in the doorway and, and all these ladies you know, stood to the side as if the president was walking through. <laughs> and he wiped a tear away from his eye and he said, I want you to understand the work you're doing preparing these sandwiches is just as, if not more important than the work I did giving the message today. I wonder how those ladies' lives were changed that night. Because if that story is true, I think it is, I hope it is. <laughs> Billy Graham got this. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, the one who makes the sandwiches, who supports the people who are helping people accept Jesus, who are trained in that. It's just, that's a vital role. Everyone's got a role to play. The one who answers the phone call for the people that are calling in for, the tele, for when Billy Graham's messages are going out and they're taking the calls and take, that's just, there's no superiority here. We've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. We're a family of servants who are all gifted in different ways to step in. But here's the thing. We've got to step in. We've got to step up. We've got to understand our assignment, and we've got to do something. Three commandments to be proactive with our faith. Many of us are completely inactive with our faith. We show up for church, and everyone else serves us. It's a totally selfish way to go about the kingdom of God. We come here, the coffee's already made. Well, coffee comes in a couple weeks, just so you know. We're, we're bringing it back. We had to stop coffee because of COVID. Coffee will be here in a couple weeks, okay? Why is coffee here? Because Miss Rosa wakes up at 5 in the morning to make the coffee. Miss Rosa, right here. Every week, 5 in the morning. You, you get a cup of coffee when you come to church. Why? Because Rosa's here. Why is the table set up? Why, why are the lights on? How, how, why are the musicians here? How do the microphones get set up? How did Bread of Life ministry happen? They pour hours into this thing. <laughs> They're in my offices regathering the, the, the rooms and the supplies as much as I'm in my offices, I feel like. See, you've got to step into this thing. It doesn't just happen. Here, look, July 4th weekend, historically, is the most violent weekend in this city. You know that? It's the most violent weekend in this city. And we can expect that it's going to be a very violent weekend. It's hot outside. This last week has been terrible. We've been praying for revival. There were a handful of us in that room this morning praying that God would protect this city from the violence that should come over. How is that going to change? You want to be a Christian? You want to step into brokenness? It's not just come to church on Sunday. It's live a proactive life, understanding your responsibility, and step into brokenness sacrificially with your time, with your money, with your resources, with your life. We give our blood for this. Why? Christ is worthy. I'd rather be the doorkeeper in the house of the Lord doing something than being inactive. Are you serving our children? Do you understand that when you're serving our children, we're bringing our kids' ministry back soon too, when you serve our kids... Do you know the impact you're making generationally in children's lives? My children need more Christian men and women on their knees playing with them, demonstrating to them. I need 25 more volunteers in the children's ministry. Who's going to sign up? 
I need 25 more. Nadia's begging to get more volunteers so we can open this thing fully sometime soon. I need 25. Can we fill that? Do you have the gift of music? Do you have the gift of tech? Do you have the gift of greeting people and loving one another? Do you have the gift of serving, evangelizing? What's you, how are you wired? Whatever you do, don't be inactive in this thing. I remember, let me close with this story. We had a senior pastor. He moved to Turkey to be a, a missionary. You want to talk about being a, a faithful senior pastor? In this city, I've seen in the last five years, seven senior pastors have to step back for moral failures, at least. Just in this city. I'm not even talking talk about the stuff you read in the news. I just know the pastors. I know what's going on in the churches. Our senior pastor, Jackson Crum, in his early 60s with grandkids that he loves, moves to Turkey to be a missionary. Talk about a legacy. As a young pastor looking up to a senior pastor, that to me says, okay, that's someone I can follow. He used to have a, a, a sign on his door. I'd go in, I'd, I'd come with a question. And no matter how busy Jackson was, you know, the pressures that come on a senior pastor, no matter how many expense reports he had to fill out, no matter how far behind he was on his messages, no matter how many other people wanted him for some message he had to give, no matter how, how many city council meetings he was being asked, invited to, no matter what the thing was that he was, had to do, however far behind, he had a little picture on his wall that said ministry of inconvenience by his door. And you know what it said? To him, it meant whenever he looked over to his door, no matter what he was doing, he'd turn his screen around and give you his full attention. <laughs> and he was a very important man. There were a handful of generals in this city that God was using, and he was one of them. But when you walked in his office, ministry of inconvenience, they get my full attention. What do you need? Man, I want to be that guy. And so, Christian, I'm inviting you into this. There's a moment here that's happening. We're coming out of COVID, and if you don't realize how important this moment is for Christians, I invite you to wake up. Isolation, separation, not seeing each other's faces. The one place on this planet that can bring healing to the brokenness is the church. But you, you gotta know the cost, and you gotta be willing to pay it. And I invite you to pay it with me. Heavenly Father, we love you. We ask, Father, that you would do a Holy Spirit-filled work in this place. Make us a, a Christian biblical community that loves Jesus, that's beholding Christ, that's willing to pay the cost, that's willing to be sacrificial. We don't want to talk about our Christianity only. We want to live it. And Lord, we know that there is a deep and abiding joy in living increasingly this way. Lord, today I'm preaching to myself. I know all of these things run deep in me. I'm so prone to every mistake there is. Lord, forgive me. Forgive us. Lord Jesus, I pray for this next year coming out of COVID, coming out of a lack of community. Jesus, build it the right way. Let us relay the foundation the way it's supposed to be, one brick at a time. Lord Jesus, have your way with us. Build it. Build it in me. Build it in us. And Lord, whatever is standing in our way of pouring ourselves out sacrificially into this community, Get rid of it in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' holy name.